we have this idea that you have to figure it out before you can make an impact when everybody's always figuring it out along the way. This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here are your hosts, Chantal Nash and Gary Norton from the digital learning team at Crotonville, GE's Global Learning Institute. In today's episode, we have a recent graduate of GE's Financial Management Program, also known as FMP, one of GE's many leadership programs. Her name is Nina Bernardin, and over the course of our conversation, we talked about millennials, how organizations, including GE, are changing with the generations, and the concept of multipotentialite, which is really interesting. So here it is. Please enjoy. So I recently graduated from GE's Financial Management Program, FMP. That is one of our leadership programs in GE, there are seven today, I believe, and they span across all the different functions from commercial leadership in sales and uh, com- in the commercial side to engineering with the Edison program uh, to HR. So we have we have people and young young people who are just out of school coming through these programs um, in every function. So this can relate to people no matter what work they're doing within the company or outside of outside of GE. Um, so I graduated in 2014 from Indiana University, and I studied international development with a also a degree in business management. So I actually didn't have much uh, finance training, really not much at all, before joining um, FMP. And that's what I think is really what's really great um, about the way the recruitment went for me joining the company. It was a focus on, you know, we can teach you, we can teach you um, accounting, we can we can teach you the data like what you need to know and that's what how the program is built is to teach um every that program is built to go on four different rotations six months apiece and during each one of those rotations you take a different course in finance and accounting so we start with the foundations of finance moving into operations controls um so how to how to monitor fraud <laughs> and um and the last being strategy so what they told me was you know they rec- they they liked that um, they recognize leadership and they want to they want to bring people into the company who want a career and who want um, who want to develop their leadership skills. Uh, not somebody who wants a job, but someone who wants a career where they'll grow. So when when you say that they were looking for leadership and somebody who was looking for a career, what was that like in terms of the interview process with GE? Um, you know what what were they looking for? You know, they were looking for, I didn't get the same kinds of technical questions that I had in, in interviews with other companies. So other companies, uh, I had some interviews in consulting and um, and in investment banking even, and they were much more geared towards um, what is the skill set that you, you know, what exactly can you answer this question, um, you know, giving you technical questions. Our interview was focused on, okay, what kind of, you know, they were behavioral questions. Um, they were questions about leadership and management, um, how I had dealt with failure, how I had learned from my, from mistakes, um, and what I was most proud of, you know, so I felt in the process that I was really getting interviewed for what kind of person I am, what kind of, um, and they wanted to choose people who, who were reflective and who wanted to, to grow with the company as a person, as well as, as, you know, in the, in the role that they're eventually going to be in. 
did that make you more interested in GE after that as compared to other companies? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, um, I was hired in Louisville, Kentucky, actually, before the sale of appliances. And so on my way back up to IU, I just thought to myself, wow, you know, this felt so comfortable to me. It felt like people were interested in who I am as a person um, and not just to fill a slot, but to bring me to the next level of leadership and of professional um, development. Yeah. And so there is a lot of talk about, you know, upcoming generations and their role in the workplace. We connected a little bit on the Simon Sinek video about the millennial problem. And there, I mean, that's just one data point of many for criticisms about millennials. Um, and it's not unique to our generation either. So let's talk a little bit about in terms of in terms of the leadership program, it sounds like even from the recruitment experience that it was a little bit different in terms of the approach to development. Being in the program and, and now being as part of GE as a whole, how, how do you think uh, they did in managing some of the changes from upcoming generations that are needed? Um, starting, as you were saying, starting from day one, really, of the, um, of the interview process, they, I felt that the people, that the interviewers were taking an interest in who I am and that I wasn't just, just a number. I think that, um, we talked about the millennial problem, right? We, um, we've talked about, we've spoken about Simon, um, Sinek's video and how millennials want to make an impact. They want to, and also how millennials like to feel special. <laughs> so I would say um, that these programs do a great job of that. And coming into coming into the organization, I felt I felt like people were looking at me as a person. Um, and it wasn't. It was about um, the feedback was about both me as a you know the feedback that I was given about my professional development was also um, was taken you know in a broader sense. You know these were things that I wanted to work on as a person. Um, you know whether it be organization skills or whether it be um, having executive presence. These are things that, that go beyond just the workplace. And so when we talk about a leadership program, it's, it isn't just about giving you the skill set. It's about giving you, making you someone who, can, um, who has the full package, who, can have the, who has the skill set, yes, but it has the ability to learn and to take feedback and to to have presentation skills, the things that aren't necessarily always in the job description. So going back to kind of what you first said about, you know, millennials wanting to feel special, do you feel like that is isolated to the millennial generation? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I would, I would like to think no. I would think no. <laughs> I think everybody obviously likes Gary. to be recognized. Let's ask Gary. Gary, but, <laughs> do you like to feel, do you like to feel special? Well, I, I think that most people like to feel special, but I think in the time period that I grew up in, you didn't walk around feeling special. Mm. There were occasions that you felt special, uh, but I think by and large, most of the kids that I grew up with and as we went through high school, I mean, you felt special on certain occasions. You know, your team won the football game that night or maybe the championship that year or you were prom king or queen or you got the highest test in a calculus course right something like that would make you feel special but on a day-to-day -day basis 
you wouldn't walk around thinking that you were special. I got it. So it's a differentiation between that you as a whole are just special compared to everybody else versus versus those individual experiences. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I think you would you would get arguments from some people depending upon, you know, maybe their cultural background or religious beliefs that, you know, everyone is special and everyone is unique. And I think, you know, we all understood that, but it was walking around, you know, there were some people who thought they were special. There's always people who feel that they're special, right? More special than everybody else. So do you feel, uh, you know, at, in terms of the upcoming generations, that there are more people who feel that way? in an unwarranted way than should be? I I won't say that. And in fact, you know, we had mentioned earlier that I have two daughters, both at the very tail end of being a millennial. And I think with my wife being a psychologist, we always gave them positive affirmation on a lot of things, you know, everything that they endeavored to do, encouragement to do things, um, and told them that they were, special but not more special than anyone else right that there was not there was nothing that they couldn't do and you know kind of like everybody puts their pants on the same way if they can do it you can do it kind of thing you're you know and gave that type of encouragement so hopefully that made them walk around feeling like that they were empowered and um and that they could tackle anything but they weren't and maybe the word special gets confused with better Right. You're not yeah. better than anybody else, but mm-hmm. you're special and unique as an individual. As soon as I said those words, I smiled to myself like, oh, man, I'm falling into that millennial trap saying exactly <laughs> what <laughs> what people of other generations are thinking. No, but, um, it's, but it's OK, because I think I think this is we've now gotten to this really great point, which is exactly what Gary said. I think there is this confusion between just because we may want to and maybe we're just better at being vocal about wanting to be recognized. It doesn't mean that we think we're better. Um, of course, there are people that do, but I think that might be a misconception here that um, that Gary's pointed out. And Gary, your example of how you guys handle this in your household uh, is really interesting to me because of, because of this whole idea of the participation trophy and knowing how you feel about that. But at the same time, you've raised your daughters to feel like they are special as people, just just not in a way that makes them feel like they're better than somebody else. So, and coming back to to that point, um, Gary, that's that's how that's how I've been raised too. My, it was always you know you can do anything that you set your mind to. Like you can you can do it if you try hard. If you really put put your head down and you try hard, um, you know you can accomplish what you're setting out to try to accomplish, and if I may pivot this, uh, this conversation directed in, in a new kind of direction here about millennials, it's when we hear things like millennials are going to have five to seven different career changes in their lifetime. Part of me wonders why people are surprised, why, why people who, um, who raised millennials would be that surprised. Because for me, I've learned, it's been ingrained in me that we can, you know, you can do what you, what you want to set out to do and that work Work should be fulfilling. Work should be meaningful and have, um, you know, when you have a goal like that, that means something to you. So it's kind of funny. I, I when I look around at some of my friends who, uh, uh, and we talk about topics like this, 
it's like, well, it's it's not really our fault that we've been wired this way, you know. And when you come into into a um a situation and you're finding that, you know, um the work isn't meaningful to you or that you're not um that you you don't feel man, this is this is kind of difficult to articulate, I suppose. Uh but I guess what I'm trying to say is that we've been raised to think we can and that I heard uh, just this morning uh, the statement that, you know, a couple of years ago on the front of Time magazine, it talked about how millennials are the me, me, me generation, right? And that's that's where all the negative stereotypes about millennials come from is uh, narcissistic. They're lazy, entitled, these things that um, I definitely don't want to, I hope uh, don't, I don't uh, embody but instead of thinking it about us being me, me, me generations, instead of thinking, I heard someone say, it's not about us being me, me, me generations, but about being a purpose-driven generation. And if we don't see the purpose, if we don't feel that it's meaningful or that it's, it's, that it's, it's contributing to something we believe in, um, it, it makes it, I think it, it really demotivates a lot of people who have been wired to believe they can and that they, they ought to do what they believe in and that they ought to have a career that is fulfilling and life-giving. And I want to point out, too, that when – and at least for me, I mean, I, I keep this conversation open in case other people's experiences were different. But when I was told, you know, you could be anything, um, and part of that I, I even wonder, too, how much of that was – just something we were hearing in society versus from my parents. Cause I don't specifically remember like constantly being told by my parents that you can do anything. Right. But, um, the, the point with this is I never believed for a minute, even if I, I knew I could be anything that it wouldn't take work. And that was something mm. I think from the Simon Sinek video that rubbed me the wrong way is I got the impression that he was saying, you know, we were told, that we could be anything we want and therefore we expect it without trying or without working. Yes, I think that we understand it'll take work and practice. I, What he said about being impatient did resonate with me because I think we know in our heads that it's going to take work, it's going to take effort. But we've also held up people in, in all of our case studies in school and in all of the tech, modern technology we use, we hold up people like Mark Zuckerberg, like Larry Page, like like Steve Jobs, these people who at a very young age developed something that completely changed the fabric of our society. So not only are we told we can, but then we're given icons of people who did it. You know, we have these 30 under 30 posts every year, right? We have people, you know, oh, these are the people you should praise, people who really made an impact fast. All these young people who are just getting in there and, and, um, and you give the credit to the person when, um, and we, and I think that that does put in each and people an itch to, to do it now, you know, like, Maybe I'm being a fool by being patient. Maybe there's a faster way, you know, and, and I think, and that's something that, um, that's worth chewing on, um, for all of us. Yeah. yeah the, the other thing that I think plays into that sense of instant gratification kind of that you just mentioned, you know, given the technology that have been around, um, recently in the last 15, 20 years, right? Um, we start to get things faster and faster. And then we get the sense of, you know, we need it today or yesterday. But there's a lot of people who 
will also look at someone and it's the perception of work. They don't see you working as hard as they did, but yet you're, I don't know, succeeding or moving ahead. And so I wonder if there's a lot of that cast upon millennials because it just looks like you're not working hard, right? <laughs> like, and I'll, I'll just say in my house, my one daughter, right? Academically gifted, just doesn't look like she's putting in any effort, but she is. She doesn't complain about it and you don't see her do it, but she might be up in her room doing stuff for hours and hours on end and comes downstairs as pleasant as a lark and you never know she was just cramming for a chemistry exam or something. <laughs> it's a good point and I think you hit on where I was going to go next with this which is, um, well, a couple of things. One is the technology aspect and I do completely agree with this notion that all of the technology and all of the the access that we have to information, it makes it difficult. And especially with social media, which I think overall is a great thing. Um, still, there is this this issue, and I, I'll, I will call it an issue because I think it is, of constantly comparing each other to our friends, to strangers, to, you know, to people we know nothing about and situations we know nothing about. So I think with that and combined with just the world changing in general, that that has had an impact on the impatience factor. And part of it, I feel, is also warranted. We expect organizations to change. You know, there's a lot of conversations about, especially with GE, right? We have FastWorks. We have, um, we're changing our the way we do performance development. And everything is intended to be more agile, to be faster, to be leaner. And so part of that makes me also think, well, why are we surprised then that people with their careers are expecting similar similar changes in the in the career path. I think that, you know, a linear career path doesn't really exist for for many people and Gary can attest to that. The fact that we say work looks differently um or work looks different is is a a key point here too because um you know, I think there was this there was an article in I don't know if it's called Aussie or OZY, I don't know how it's pronounced, but the article was saying that Part of the of the challenge is that, to Gary's point, a millennial might work well in a flexible environment. They might want to go work out at three o'clock in the afternoon, but then they might come back and, and work until seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. Um, so it's just that where and when and how the work gets done looks different. And it makes people think, oh, they're not they're not working. They're not putting in the time. No, yet yeah, that. um I think that the work-life balance conversation has to really change. And I, it's going through a transformation now. I really believe it is. But um, I think that we've got a long way to go in our discussions on work-life balance. Because that – I read a book about um, a year into my – into the program, so about a year and a half ago. Um, and it was called Off Balance by Matthew Kelly. And it really – it really flipped on its head everything I thought I knew about work-life balance. Because I found that I was, you know, entering entering the the working world, I thought to myself, you know, I don't I don't want to be someone who who doesn't have any life outside of work, right? I want to make sure that I have work-life balance and that, you know, I'm I I were I build up my community around me and um but sometimes I felt like it was I sometimes some days I did I I was trying I wanted to stay to stay later at work I was on I was really on a roll for something right or um, even though there is all these people talking about like you know you should leave at this time you should 
you know, make sure you leave at, at five 30 and take time to yourself and have personal life. Right. That's, um, and obviously let me maybe rephrase that, but the words that he used in the book, okay. The words he used in the book were work life satisfaction instead of work life balance. And I guess the, the point I was trying to make wasn't, um, was that instead of saying, all right, you need to get in at this time and leave at this time and the rest of the time to have work life balance, you need to have this much time, not at work. Um, or you need to carve out, you know, this percentage of your time here and this percentage of your time at work. Um, instead, you know, both of them have are have an ebb and a flow. It talks about like just the difference between work-life balance and work-life satisfaction. That sometimes there will be weeks when you're giving a lot to work, but there'll be other times when you're giving more to your personal life or to your family when they're in need, right? Um, and that is inherently part of this conversation on flexibility, like you were saying, you know, someone who's going to go work out at three because, um, maybe that's when naturally their, you know, their brain is, is sort of, they need, it needs a break. It needs to be to, to take some time and, and get away from their cube. And then they come back and they're refreshed and they've got some different ideas and they're taking care of their body. You know, they're taking care of their health instead of sitting in, in the cube and getting distracted by something else to kind of, um, or take, getting a cup of coffee to replace, something that's actually very helpful and that's healthy. You know what? I have a question and this might be a, like a hard left turn here. Um, so do you guys who are millennials, do you think that a millennial would manage a millennial differently or what are your expectations of, did you say the next generation is a Z, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, would you think a millennial is more understanding of the work-life satisfaction type of balance if, you know, um, they are now in a leadership position and they are, you know, responsible for delivering, you know, whether it's a complex project or sales numbers or or whatever. Do you think they, they'll be more apt to fall back into the traditional type of, you know, management role? I don't want to say micromanagement, but. Mm. So I'll, oh. I, I, I want to give Nina time <laughs> to answer. I'll, I'll give her a minute to think about it though. For me, I, I think, I, I do think that as millennials start going into leadership positions that they will manage differently and they'll lead differently. Um, I think they will be a little more flexible. I, I certainly think, you know, the obvious one is that they'll understand more about the technology and the flexibility um, I, I think, again, because I think society as a whole is shifting, you know, there's more focus on health, there's more focus on that flow of work at work and life. I don't think it, it's going to come to a surprise to us if Generation Z is coming and saying they want to be able to work from home. I don't think that that millennials will think they're not working hard if they're doing things more digitally versus, I don't know, some other way. So I think in that sense, it will be different. Um, not to say that there won't be challenges. And one thing that I, you know, eventually we can go into with this conversation too, is the role of, you know, pop culture in how we treat generations and how, because of that, you know, because of, for example, the things that millennials are hearing about themselves, how does that affect then how they treat the generations that they will then lead? Because there there are some implications that, you know, because we've heard criticisms about ourselves, does that mean maybe we are going to then criticize the generations that we lead, perhaps just as unfairly as some of the things that are said about us? Um, but I, I'm interested to hear what Nina thinks, too. That's an interesting perspective, Chantal, that you just mentioned, um, because 
the saying, treat others the way you like to be treated, right? That's, that's what we've, we've learned growing up. But what if we treated people the way they want to be treated? And so when you get in, when, when a millennial would get into a management position, they might treat people the way they wish they'd been treated instead of treating them the way they desire to be treated or the way their generation, um, wants to, or it works best. Um, I, I agree with you that, um, I think an approach that would be good, um, for a millennial and potentially for the upcoming generation that's going to be so connected with technology is to give more, give clear expectations. Um, say like this needs to be done by this time, but the way to get there is on you. Um, I think that micromanaging can be the most, the most unempowering management style, um, I've experienced and that I think I'm sure many people who've had managers that they feel micromanage them can relate to that. Uh, but you know, some people work best at night and some people want to stay, they'll stay up, they'll stay up till three in the morning, you know, finishing a project. They'll, they won't necessarily be logged on from nine to five or from eight 30 to, to six 30. They might take it into the night where they won't be as disturbed. And that's, that's another, um, that's, and to take it one step further, there have been, I read some about studies that say how difficult it is to get back into your, I'm going to call it your zone, right? Your flow state once you've been interrupted. And so the desire for a lot of people to work into the night or work in times when other people aren't working or aren't up to ping them or send an email that they ought to respond to is when you break that state, when you break that flow state, it can take you up to 20 minutes to get back to where you, to the point you left. So we, on our days are broken up with meetings. We don't have a solid chunk of time to do the work that can be, that can result in such, it makes it so much slower to get through. So I would think in, as a, as a manager, um, if I, you know, when I become a manager, I would try to aim for giving people who work under me solid blocks of time to get work done that are uninterrupted kind of and make that a, a reliable time frame. There was some people, some companies that were toying with the idea of no meetings before, before 11 AM, you know, so that everyone in the morning was always a time when they weren't going to be interrupted by, by a, a short meeting. And I thought that that was really interesting and innovative. So I, that, I believe that relates to what we were talking about just, um, in a new way, new ways of thinking about flexibility and how, um, how people, people's working styles may differ from generation to generation. Right. And, and allowing a, an individual to even manage that it maybe it doesn't have to be a company wide or a, a team wide policy. Even maybe if you say, Hey, every person on the team, if you want to block off, block off some time once each week or whatever, whatever, you know, that might look like, um, you know, let them do that. And I don't think either that it has to be, at least I like to give everybody older generations, younger generations, future generations, the benefit of the doubt that we all understand there are business needs. There are times where obviously you're not going to want to block yourself off. Um, and there are times where maybe you did block yourself off and something has to change and you have to be flexible in that way too. We get that that stuff happens and it's not like if something is different than our quote unquote expectation that we throw a fit about it. Um, at least that's not what my experience has been. But going along with this, I also want to touch on this aspect that we talked about earlier of, of the career development. And so not just how how millennials might manage 
but also how they might develop other people. And this concept of multi-potentialite. And Nina, I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit and maybe introduce that concept. Yes. So there is a fascinating TED Talk um, about the concept of being a multi-potentialite. And it really goes contra to the way many organizations are set up to to get um, into a certain role, a certain type of role, and to stay in that function or in that career path for the rest of your career to get to specialize and to become just go thousand miles deep into this one field um, and be an expert. Instead, this idea is about it's centered around um, having many different skill sets, being a jack of all trades or being a renaissance man slash woman and how that how people with diverse skill sets and diverse backgrounds can bring innovative concepts to to teams and can really bring out and bring forth new innovative uh, idea synthesis. So she gave um, she gave a few examples of, you know, growing up, we've been told that we you can't be a violin maker and a doctor at the same time. You got to pick. You have to choose one thing that you're going to be when you grow when you grow up. Um, it's pretty. It's pretty beautiful how she she says. Actually, there's this doctor who is a violin maker and a psychiatrist. <laughs> and so, this idea that um, having you know op- to having other interests and other curiosities and um, even other professional experience, how that can bring value to a completely different tech, um, a completely different type of team that has, um, so how a, with a background in design can come and, and help, a, uh, mark the mark, a marketing team or someone with marketing experience going into, um, going into engineering. And Gary, it sounds like you've had, had this experience, um, as you said, before we, before we started recording, you were a millennial before it was cool. Because you've you've had a, quite a few career changes yourself. Yeah, um, right out of college, I, I worked for what we would term a, a Beltway Bandit, right down in the Washington D.C. area, and then I worked for the Department of Defense for a few years before coming to GE. But I've been with GE since 1988, and um, within these 29 years, I've made multiple job changes, business changes. So instead of job, I'll say career changes because they were totally different shifts. As long as I had a transferable set of skills that I could bring with me, I saw no reason why I wasn't able to, you know, move into a, a job that I had never done before, a career I had never done before and apply those skills. And as long as I kept doing it with, uh, you know, some success, I was um, free to do it in GE, which was great, and I love that. I I always um, tout and praise GE um, with, with other people for that. I'm like I've I've done it for nearly 30 years, and I've always had the same paycheck, you know. But same company, same benefits. I never had to worry about learning a whole new system of that. I would just take a new job with the same company every three to five years, and I absolutely love that about GE. Absolutely. I think that GE's really, um, I think GE's challenging the idea that, that 
um, that you come in and I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I believe what you're saying that in GE, we are encouraging people to try new things and to move on, to try different jobs to, and in leadership programs, you're going from different, you're testing out the waters in different jobs in a very short amount of time to see where, where do you fit? Where, what kind of teams do you, do you work best on? Um, and I think that's really going to, to prove its worth in the coming years with this generation. Yeah, there was a time period in GE where the perception among people was to get ahead, to move around, to get known. You'd have to do that every three to five years. And I can't tell you exactly when it was, but it's certainly during Jeff Immelt's uh, reign of CEO where he started saying, hey, you know what? Um, There is nothing wrong with being in a role for 10 years and building deep domain expertise. Nobody knows an aircraft engine better than an aircraft engine engineer, right? Um, so build, stay in there. If you like it and you enjoy it and it's fulfilling and rewarding to you, build that deep domain expertise. We need that in GE. You don't need to jump around. Um, and I don't know if that was in the Jack Welsh era that that became a popular thing to do and people thought that you had to do it. But um, there are people who just like a new challenge and like to learn something new. And GE does not preclude you from doing that, which is the great thing. I think that's really important, Gary, to point out that it's not an either or, right? I mean, there's definitely people that as specialists, they they love to be specialists. And equally, we need them as specialists. Um, but I think even just acknowledging that there's uh, so Emily Wapnick or Wapnick, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but she's the one who did this TED Talk, which was titled, Why Some of Us Don't Have One True Calling. And, and as part of that conversation, the multi, multi-potentialite, she talks about the three superpowers that they have, which are idea synthesis, rapid learning, and adaptability. So she, she goes through this story of how you know she became frustrated, and many people, many of us become frustrated because we think we found this thing that's really our passion, and then all of a sudden we get bored with it or it doesn't go in the direction we wanted it to go. And so then we try to find something else. And then after some time, we find another thing and we say, oh, my gosh, this is this is the thing. Like, I'm going to dedicate all my, my energy to this. And then it, it, the same thing happens. You go through this cycle. And, and we feel bad about it because we feel like there's something wrong with us when really um, it's totally okay. And there's a lot of advantages to having multiple passions like that. So I, I, I love that part of the conversation. I absolutely did too. And she, the way she was, she gave, um, different examples of people who had all had interests in, you know, in, in design and in math and in jewelry, and then go off and to create, they go and create a business that has like geometric shapes on, on different jewelry that has become very popular, you know, um, how people can synthesize all these different ideas and bring, add new value to something that may, may, um, that could use those kinds of fresh, fresh perspectives. Um, I also wanted to add here that I watched an, a TED talk. It was a 31-year-old man. His name is Adam Smiley Poswalski. Poswalski, um, and he talked about about his quarter-life crisis. I think that it's kind of um, as millennials have coined. I think it's millennials who have coined this term of the quarter-life crisis, and and we also talk so much. The phrase that we hear, that I hear so much, 
um, out of my own mouth and out of my friends' mouths that are my age. Um, it's, oh, I'm figuring it out. I'm going to figure it out. This guy's got it figured out. You know, that idea of having it figured out. Um, and I think that that kind of comes from this idea. We've grown up with so much, with so much information at our fingertips. It almost feels like the answer's got to be out there somewhere. Like we just need to work hard enough, read enough, listen to enough Tony Robbins and <laughs> we should be able to figure life out, you know? And, and I do think, um, that can cause lots of, lots of anxiety. Uh, but what I wanted to point out about this, per, uh, this guy, his, um, about Smiley, he talked about his quarter life crisis and what his main tagline quote was, is like how he got through his quarter life crisis and found meaningful work. And it wasn't, how I got through my quarter life crisis and found $5 million or how I got through my quarter life crisis and, um, you know, became, became senior executive. Uh, not that that isn't desirable by many people, but to say that, that there's, it's like the good news is that not everyone is searching to, to be, um, to be the next senior executive Right. Some people like if if you find a job you love, you might just hunker down and say, I want to really get into this. I want to specialize in this and I want I want to make this um, to be the best at this work. Um, and that might mean not not going up into management. Right. But it's like replaced with. So the good news is not everyone's trying necessarily motivated to get to the senior executive level. But that's also part of the bad news because it's replaced with this more elusive and vague personal question of what meaningful work is to you. That's very true. And, and I think also, again, going back to the fact that we're, we have social media and we're seeing all these things and hearing all these stories and um, it makes us feel like we don't have it figured out because of all that. When in reality, a lot of people don't have it figured out and, and going back to the point of older generations, they didn't have it figured out either, but the environment that we're working within to try to make sense of that is different. And I think it also goes into this concept of imposter syndrome. You know, people who, who are a CEO or somebody very successful sometimes feel like they're an imposter, like they're a fake, like they don't deserve it or something because it doesn't seem like they should have achieved that level of success. You know, in the wake of Martin Luther King Day, I actually was I was listening to a biography about, about Martin Luther King and it talked about how he was only in his 20s when he went out and did the work that he's so known for um, and really changed our world. They were talking about in his biography, it, it really illustrates that he struggled with self-doubt and he um, he did not have it figured out. You know, he, he was obviously the leader of, of, a, of a huge movement, but, you know, we have this idea that you have to figure it out before you can make an impact when everybody's always figuring it out along the way. One point I wanted to, that I wanted to make by talking about the meaningful work and how that's kind of like, that's a more vague question for people yeah. to answer. And I think this, that our generation poses a, a brand new challenge for HR executives and for eight people working in HR across the board, you know, because people are willing to take pay cuts for a job that they care about. And so the same kind of incentives that maybe have been in place for a long time and worked for a long time may not be as effective in our generation. But, but if you can find the right fit for someone, you know, they, their engagement levels will be off the charts. They will be contributing so, 
so much and they'll be giving their full heart into something um, that is also bringing them lots of joy. So it's a complete win-win if, if that fit is found um, at the right, you know, for, for each person. But that's that's vague and that's that's difficult to find, you know, that takes some time. And that could be part of the reason why we hear that fact of millennials changing careers. And I think it's a key part of this is absolutely there's a responsibility on the individual to communicate those things, especially as you go through an interview process. You know, certainly HR needs to ask the right questions, uh, but as an individual, you also need to be able to articulate what your needs are. And um, I think if you're doing that, though, and an organization is just not set up to to operate in a way that that can honor that for a, a wide range of, of needs, then that is where we run into trouble. And that's to come full circle here. Uh, that's one thing that I think is very interesting about your experience going into the leadership program with GE is it sounds like sounds like they understood that and under you know understand that present tense as well. Yeah, absolutely. And not only do you are you taught the skills on these programs, you are you you do learn more about what types of teams you work best on. Um, so as a first, some, some, I'm sure it's typical for someone's first job to be on a team and have the same manager for a year or two. Um, whereas coming through, through with, with the program, you have four different managers, maybe even five different managers. Um, and you, and you not only adjust to how they operate and learn how to work on teams that have different leadership styles. Um, but you also are able to identify, okay, this is the type of team I, I work best on and that I was, um, most, you know, this team brought the best out of me. And so I want to look for leaders with this type of characteristic to work for long term. So I, and I think that is really invaluable. I don't think I fully even understand the kind of value I've gotten from the financial management program. Definitely. And, and one other thing too, is I think this goes toward what I have heard referenced as the consumerization of a career, I guess, in the sense that organizations are getting more competitive. You know, organizations like GE, were changing the performance development process. Um, there's different policies that are coming in terms of flexible working schedules. And, you know, there are some organizations that are not changing and it's just like anything else in our lives, right? If we have one piece of chocolate and another piece of chocolate comes out that's more delicious, well, yeah, I'm going to change to getting that piece of chocolate from now on. <laughs> and, you know, we don't criticize those companies for that. That's just competition. So, <laughs> Right. And I think, you know, all of our largest, most influential companies right now, I'm, I'm going to, in the tech world, like Google, like Facebook, the big names that we seem to hear about all the time, these are young companies. You know, I think that, yes, they've, they've embraced a style of culture and leadership. Um, and they've fully embraced it because it's their first and only, um, culture and style. But I, you know, GE has been around for, has been what around, um, for 150. Yeah, uh, well, I want to say it's like 125. Yes, 125 years. And we were the oldest. We've been on, um, on the stock exchange for longer than like any other company. We've, we've remained, we've adjusted, we've adapted for so long. And I'll be, it'll be interesting to watch as some of these new companies, you know, what if the next 
trend um, challenges them to change their culture, will they be able to change? Um, are they, you know, it would really, I think the GE is proven that we are an adapting learning organization. And this is just one more time when we are being tested. But we have such a great track track record, <laughs> whereas other other companies, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they adapt and how they how they um, if they're able to really prove their worth as a, a learning organization. That's I, I hadn't thought of that before, but you're absolutely right. You know, there's going to be a time where where the the companies that are contemporary today are, are going to become outdated too, and, and they'll need to adapt. So we'll see. It's it's very interesting. I guess the last thing I'd like to I'd like to make sure is taken away from this is that though it may take some time for a millennial or for someone of our generation to find a role that they're really excited about and really like passionate about, you know, a role that that they get that they feel is is the right match for them. That I hope and I I believe that the effort that went into getting to making that happen will be offset by the amount, the level of amount of value you're going to get from someone who's fully engaged. Another, um, another statistic I heard today was that, you know, well, there are a lot of people, 70, oh, 70%, 70% of Americans are disengaged at their job. And a large fraction of that 70% not only is disengaged, but their disengagement leads them to actually undermine their coworkers work. So not only are they not engaged and not enjoying their work, they're also making it, they're being paid to, to be disengaged and harm others in the process. And so I think that though it may seem flighty or unfocused, um, a millennial may seem that way in their career path at first, because really, you know, the oldest people in the millennial or the millennial, um, uh, generation are, 37, you know, so there's still so much more time left in the career path. So to, to see the value in our mindset. Um, but once there, that is found, once meaningful work is found and there may still be changes, it might be, okay, now I found sort of my niche. I want to try something else within this niche. I want to try something else within this niche. And there might still be that, um, that aspect of changing roles and trying on different hats. But Having someone who's motivated and engaged is just, you know, and and bringing down that percentage of people who are disengaged and and who are who are hurting other people's work is has a measurable value. I, I could not agree with you more on that point. I think that's very important to recognize all of the side implications for 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 a lot of things. It is a noble pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. And by all means, I, yeah, again, there are challenges. GE's not perfect at it. We as individuals are not perfect. But thank you, Nina, for being a part of this conversation. I think, um, you know, hopefully this adds a lot to the, I, I'm sure, millions of other conversations we've seen on this. We're, we're adding one more to it. But I really enjoyed this conversation. So I hope you did, too. Absolutely. And thank you for having me on this show, Chantal. I appreciate it. And you as well, Gary. Enjoyed the time you spent with us today and uh, perhaps we'll have you back again soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and of course, like, comment, rate, and share. Thanks for listening.